Are you a hybrid athlete who wants to learn more about how to combine your strength and endurance training? Well, I've written a new book, The Science of Hybrid Training. In this book, I provide insight into the misconceptions surrounding strength and endurance training by distilling the past 50 years of research and drawing on the conversations I had with great scientists, coaches, and athletes on the Progress Theory podcast. This book is essential reading for hybrid athletes and coaches who are looking to understand the key training variables and their effect on the simultaneous development of strength and endurance performance. Get your copy now, available to buy from Amazon. Now, let's get into the show. Hello, podcasters. Welcome back. And I'm really happy to announce that Progress Theory is now expanding. And we've just started the Progress Theory Legend Series, where we will be interviewing legends from the worlds of sport, science and sports science and hearing their inspirational stories. Now, I'm really happy that our first legend on this series is a very close friend of mine, SNC coach Ben Lonergan. And he's got a wealth of experience to share with you today as he discusses his transition from teaching and professional athlete, leading all the way up to being an SNC coach for the England women's and men's sevens team. And he's traveled the world with both sevens and tens rugby. Now, I know you will love this podcast because Ben is probably one of the most charismatic and funny people that I know. But before you get on and listen, please follow us on Instagram, follow us on YouTube, and please like and leave a comment. We love doing these podcasts and we're constantly trying to improve. So any feedback is greatly welcomed. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, here is Ben Lonigan. Right, we're in. Okay, I actually, as we started this podcast, as this is the first Progress Theory Legends podcast, I wanted to introduce you properly. And you obviously know that, what was it you said on my wedding day? Get my name in your wedding speech, which I did. You've got a number of nicknames. I'm just going to announce you properly. So the Colombian drug lord, El Lono, <laughs> Vincent Van Loners, the artist, Nicky Lonage, Professor Benatoli Londachuk, Loners. <laughs> so I've just got to the end, it's Loners. But Ben, how you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thanks, Phil. Nice to join you. Nice to see you. Yeah, it's the last time we've spoken a bit on the phone recently, but I remember in particular, what, it must have been four or five weeks ago, I saw a picture of you on Instagram where it was just you with a mask heading to Bermuda. I was like, what is going on? I'd love to start there because the stuff you were putting on Instagram looked incredible. So what were you doing out in Bermuda? Yeah, so I'll be honest, it was all a bit of a, a last-minute trip. So lucky enough, I know the Sevens boys had had been made contacts by an organisation, a, a group of people who wanted to basically start an international tens tournament. And this was sort of a trial tournament, one of the first of its its kind. And I know that the Sevens guys, especially with what's going on in the world at the moment and with a pause on the World Seven Series, with the MLR in America not started yet, Major League Rugby, and this was a good opportunity to fill the void and, and create a bit of a niche market for the boys to be able to get some rugby opportunity. Mm. Lucky enough, Dan Norton put me in touch with with one of the the organisers. And yeah, I jumped at the chance, obviously, with, with the Sevens being made redundant back in July, then obviously to jump at a chance to head to Bermuda and get back into sort of some sort of elite rugby, then I had to jump at the chance. But it looked absolutely quality what 
were you working with a, specific, a particular team out there or was it a number of the 10 teams? Yeah, so no, I was working, I was like a SSC slash manager for the Asia Pacific Dragons, which was like incredible. Name. So I've heard the name of the team before. They've done quite a few invitational tournaments, complete mix of different cultures, a lot of Polynesian guys, a lot of players from the States, a lot of players from sort of Tonga, Fiji, uh, Samoa. We had a couple of Hawaiian individuals on there couple of English guys. So yeah, it was a, you know, a, a very eclectic blend of different characters, which made it all the more enjoyable. But to have it in Bermuda, I've never been Bermuda before. I don't think I'll ever be able to afford to go again. But <laughs> the, the place was unbelievable. Country was amazing. People were incredible. Like the views there, it was, it was just, it's, it was what I needed. It certainly needed a little mental right. break. Certainly getting away from England with this COVID situation. Yeah, it's just unfortunate that it didn't start two weeks later, so I could have come back and missed the whole of lockdown, which would have been nice. But um, mm. Tan's faded already, stepped off the plane, gone. I don't know too much about the, the 10 series. Is that something that's looking to really progress, to develop obviously- into something as big as what the Sevens was? They obviously play a, a big 10s tournament once a year in Hong Kong. And this, like I said, it was a trial event to see. It was broadcast on Sky and ESPN, which is always nice. Setup was brilliant for how last minute it was, but they're looking to, to definitely make it bigger and better as the years go on. I think they're looking to franchise every team out, have maybe between eight and 10 teams involved, have four different locations and make it a bit more worldwide. For those who saw pictures of everyone who was in Bermuda, I think that's a, that's a massive driving force and people will certainly be interested at some of the locations that they've got planned for potentially next year. And a massive shout out to the organisers of that. Sam and Halle ran the some of the tournament logistics and were a big part of the, the Asia Pacific Dragons team as well and making my experience immense. So hopefully when the next one starts, you'll be heading back out, either Bermuda or whenever, wherever else they're going to host the next one to coach the same team. <laughs> to be, be invited again, I'd, I'd love to. Yeah, I'd, I'd be feel privileged and definitely very keen to, to be involved mm-hmm. in that, that International 10 Series again. Yeah. We've jumped in like on your recent experiences, but... Clearly, it's obvious to tell just from that, that you've got a complete wealth of experience at coaching at international level. I've also assumed that everyone knows your certain nicknames, but uh, you are Ben Lonigan. We can't actually introduce your full name yet. Uh, But I wanted to give an opportunity to you to explain like your progress through your S&C history. Like where did you start off with and where did it all start with? And it's ultimately ended up with you coaching at the highest level of international rugby sevens where did all this start started at a beautiful place which is known as Samaria's university <laughs> so all, all familiar with that and obviously for those who don't know me and phil were in the same year at uni as well so we, we've known each other a long time i think 2005 was when it started at, at st mary's did my undergrad degree in sports rehabilitation really enjoyed that some amazing lecturers on uh, as part of that program and nationwide i think st mary's is a fairly established program for sports rehabilitation as it is for strength and conditioning as well that, that you lecture on phil and then after that i was i was actually playing full-time rugby for a couple of years post that at London Scottish uh, whilst doing a, just a bit of personal training along the side. During that time, got offered a teaching role at Bromley College, which was a, a, a unique experience in itself. At the time, it was fairly rough college. I learned a tremendous amount. This was lecturing or teaching, whatever you want to call it, within sort of the BTEC sports programme there. Alongside that, I, I coached some of the, the rugby athletes at the college and some of the football athletes. From that, where, where did I go from there? 
So alongside that, at that time as well, I was also working a plan at Scottish working for Richmond Women. So this was my first start at Richmond Women, where they were the powerhouse at the time of of women's rugby. Um, and this was before the sort of newly formed Allianz Premiership or Women's Premiership was available. So you had teams full of sort of international players. And, and again, this was before professional contracts for women came on board. Mm. So you had lots of athlete and female athletes getting up at five, six in the morning to do their training, go to work for a full day, coming home and finishing their other session off that they had mm. to compete with. Huge kudos to them. And that was a privilege to be involved with Karen Finlay, <laughs> who's now at Harlequins and the Harlequins women's head coach. I was involved in Scotland for, for a period of time. Sort of then after lecturing at Bromley College, got offered a lecturing job at Merris Wood College, which I was there for four or five years. Alongside sort of Merris Wood, ended up going back and playing for Richmond. Ended up through that time at, at Merris Wood College. I think it might have been towards the end of... Uh, at Merris Wood College, I actually talked with uh, Paul Reid for a very short stint of time mm. before he moved on and done some amazing stuff. Yeah, the big guy. Yeah, like a, obviously very well-respected sort of practitioner and academic now. Mm-hmm. He'd moved to UCL now. Oh, is he? Yeah, yeah, he's in the UK. Because he was at Spire, wasn't he? That's it, yeah. Loads of research out there. Now he's moved to UCL. So hopefully more collaborations in the near future if he's in the UK. Yeah, definitely a person to keep an eye on for those interested. Then from Marist Wood, ended up starting my Masters, in, I think, in my last year there. Then met... A guy called Tom Farrow. So Tom Farrow, who is the lead uh, SNC for the men's program within the Sevens and owns a company called Arite Performance. They cover sort of a whole range of, of, of different services, moving from elite athletic performance to schools to youth athletes. Met him, got on board with sort of Tom's company, Tom's concepts. Sort of, I see sort of Tom as, as, as a bit of a mentor to myself. Then... From there, Rite took over sort of the physical performance management at Richmond. So I'd left the Richmond women's and stuff for a short stint of time, come back on board with Rite, was working across the men's who were in the championship women's programs, then moved to St. Mary's to lecture on the sports rehab program that I was once a student of, completed my master's. From then, oh, previous to this as well, when I was at Merris Wood, I did a couple of, uh, I did two or three pre-season camps with London Irish in the Premiership. So Rob Palmer, who was the lead SNC there, who's probably another mentor of mine and probably one of the reasons why I actually got involved with enjoying training. So I met Rob at St Mary's as a student. He, he also did the sports rehab program. He was like uh, the strongest guy at St Mary's at the time. Little small, little pineapple chunk type deal. <laughs> and then um, gone on to be sort of international powerlifter holding numerous sort of Great British records and stuff. And he, he grew my love. We had a lovely little training group at St Mary's and myself, him, Jamal, Adi, Milak. <laughs> you sure you remember him, Phil? I remember the, I remember the group. That, was, that old gym at St Mary's was brilliant. Like The floor wasn't flat and everything was a proper dungeon, but that gym was amazing. I, actually, going back to my time at St Mary's, I've missed a big part. So the EIS used to be based at St Mary's with like um, Dan Clev and Nick Cooper. These were all practitioners within the EIS at the time with athletes. So as well as training at St Mary's, I used to spend pretty much all my time in, in the gym just because you got to watch sort of practitioners in action with, a, with elite sports, men and women, Olympic sports as well. So I think that was a huge learning opportunity for me that I would just sit and watch 
these you know practitioners coach athletes i'd speak to them i'd ask them questions and they were very open about it for those who know dan clever but probably two words that don't don't go together but at, at, at that time it was a brilliant learning opportunity to learn from those guys and they had some sort of very open athletes really nice to engage with those and that was a huge learning opportunity around training with rob um where were we on my story Oh, yeah, the, the pre-season camps at London Irish. So that was obviously some of my first exposure to the professional elite environment of sport, especially rugby union. And then from that, obviously, going in to Richmond men and women, got offered the assistant role with England men's sevens to work alongside Tom because Tom went from assistant role to lead role when Dan Howes, who was lead of the England sevens, moved to America to take up a really good strength and conditioning coordinator role with the, the Houston Astros. And then... He's back in the UK as well, isn't he? Yeah, I think he's coming back. So yeah, that was an amazing opportunity. Like, the, And we'll, I'm sure we'll get on to more about the Sevens stuff, but the men's and women's programme at the Sevens is you know, an incredibly special environment. People there are all amazing. Not only the players, the staff, or all the performance staff, it, it really is a special place. And it, it was a huge learning opportunity for myself. And, and Tom obviously trusted my skills and experiences enough to... I was in charge of looking after some of the the rehabbers and long-term rehabbers and the athletes that got left behind when not selected from the World Series. So built some really close relationships from that. From that as well, I then got employed to be the lead role for the women from going from the assistant to men's program. And then, yeah, it takes me to this current day. I did also do go back to London Irish to do a bit of consultancy work to do some of their sort of speed development stuff in the year that they got promoted from the championship, which was quite nice, actually. Mm. Not just be an intern, but actually get paid for some of your services in more of sort of a consultant role. So that that was good. And then through that time as well, and through a retail, sort of worked with numerous different athletes from different sports. Currently at the moment, obviously, while I'm on a bit of a hiatus, built up quite a strong client base working with a few individuals from the premiership in terms of looking after some of their sort of their rehab side of things for those who need a little more care and working with some of the everyday population which is quite nice gone back to to you know working with a non-elite population of people who either just want to move better get more conditioned want to start a bit of training or actually have some sort of goals like signed up for a 10k and they you know they need to get conditioned mm. to complete that and then also from all the women's sort of experience within rugby was lucky enough to get invited to do one of the tours for the Women's Barbarians, which was awesome. So I did that at Twickenham against England. And that day, actually, I had to, to switch across to the men's England team as well and had to just do a bit of, of game day cover in terms of one of the S&C roles as well. And they must have thought, who is this guy just rocking up and falling and stuff <laughs> for an international match against the Barbarians? So that was good. Was it a quick change of jacket? It was literally, I ran to the England change room and put the kit on. Robin Eager, who's the pathway least strength and conditioning coach at the RFU, he he couldn't do that day, so I asked if I was available to do it. So mm. I was lucky enough to cover him. And then, obviously, through all the contacts, been invited to work as part of that, that international tens tournament and experience some amazing times with uh, the Asia-Pacific Dragons as well. Mm. And then I guess it leads us to what we're on at the moment. Yeah. But you always remember the stories you tell about just how much you were enjoying working with the England Sevens, both men and women's. And you must have really, the, the culture must have been so strong there because like, even though they've been changing at the Sevens at the moment, you're still in contact, you're still doing work with the players. Uh, and ultimately it was Dan Norton that got you involved with the Tens thing. So you must have made such an impression that 
like you still work with them despite there's been changes in the the seven system at the moment yeah i think luckily the role that that, that sort of tom put me in and some of the responsibilities that tom gave me in terms of leading on some of the or working in collaboration with the some of the physios there such as emily and remy at the time like remy has been a huge influence to me in how he's worked with some of them individuals and then obviously with the women's program with izzy but i think that time where you're working as a more of a rehab practitioner and more of a one-on-one nature or certainly very small groups of individuals is a really amazing time to really build a relationship with those Mm. and there's always that professional boundary between staff and athlete that you become so close that they almost become your friends in a way uh, because you want what's best for them you get to know them you get to know their whys and why they're doing what they're doing and then it's how do you communicate differently with those individuals how do you tailor the rehab according to those individuals of not only what you know is needed in terms of physical sense but in terms of almost what's going to make them more mentally able to deal with the the struggle that is the rehabilitation process and yeah that i think even even now Women's programs a little different at the moment because they're all they're all busy playing for clubs, playing international rugby. But certainly, still working alongside Tom and with some of the the guys at the moment who, who don't have clubs and are still building towards what hopefully is Tokyo twenty twenty one. So the dream is still not over. <laughs> what what is going on with the the sevens? With COVID, there were some changes, wasn't there? That didn't seem to affect the fifteens game, but affected the sevens game. But there's still yeah. the hope of getting to. To Tokyo next year what's going on so obviously with COVID and, and lack of fans basically the RFU were, we're losing sort of a huge amount of uh, financial gain from not being able to have fans at each game and they had to make some savings it's just a business decision mm. and part of that was to make the sevens program redundant you yeah. understand that decision kind of because obviously there's not going to be sevens till the new year and no one knew how long this was going to last or what sort of financial burden and so, yeah, they made the Sevens programme redundant. Obviously, what the future holds, we, we currently don't know. The RFU have been given some government funding. Whether or not that has an impact on the Sevens, I don't know. But what does still stand is that the group of individuals, so I know the girls had one GB camp. The boys didn't quite manage to just timelines have one. But the goal still stands of that same group of individuals still searching to, to medal at Tokyo 2021. As far as I'm concerned, as a practitioner, I, I was lucky enough to interview for that role and was given the opportunity to be the, the SNC for the women's team GB. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not that still stands, we if we're still waiting to, to, to find out, there's a lot of moving parts behind the scenes at the moment, I think, in order to try and you know get some sort of sevens program up and running, what that looks like, no one knows, but... That's still the players' dreams and ambitions, as is some of the staff that were involved. I'm guessing they're really, it's the same group of players, and from that, they want the same staff still working together, sort of on the side, to try and make this dream a reality. Who knows, Phil? Your guess is as good as mine at the moment. <laughs> I'd like to think so. Yeah, definitely. I'd you like never to. know that Boris might be listening to this podcast. <laughs> send some <laughs> money Boris, away. You're out there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, ho- hopefully. What were the key things that you noticed that were different when? working with the men's team and then working with the women's team because you really well described like developing really strong coach-athlete relationships and it sounds like from everything you tell me like one of the biggest successes of the team and the successes of a coach and your performance as a coach is your ability to do that and you do it so well but are there any differences that you have to make when working with the women's team and the men's team? Are there differences in cultures, which means your approach changes slightly? I certainly found the w- transition into the women's program 
probably my most difficult challenge to date. The reason being is that the practitioner who was there before me, uh, Katie James, very experienced practitioner, really well respected. The girls loved us. So like they're big shoes to fill. So coming into any environment where, you know, their their previous sort of lead S and C was that well liked, was that 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 well respected is, yeah. is tough. There were some challenges there. A lot of the girls were amazing, to be fair, with, with welcoming me in. A few different changes that I had. And lucky for me, the, the coaching staff had recently changed as well. So Charlie Hayter had taken over from James Bailey as head coach. So we collaborated fairly well and had similar views and visions on, on what, what was needed to make this group of individuals certainly competing with the world's best and, and trying to be the world's best sevens team. And then obviously developing that relationship with Isabel Freeman, so Izzy, the, the physio, and making sure that we're working really collaborative together, using the same terminology, language, like that was really important. There's definitely some, I think, in working with any men's and women's environment, it's all going to be on an individual basis, but there are certain you know generalizations that you can make based on research, psychological understanding of differences between men and women that are, are obviously going to be prevalent in those different groups. So certainly for me, I'm actually reading a book called Top Dog at the moment. I don't know if you've seen it by Paul Anson, and it, it, there's a lot of stuff in there talking about male and female differences. Like a few are, so if you look at like intellectual function, men tend to be quite linear. From And, and I think this is from the work of, is it Cunningham and Roberts who did a study for UK sport looking at men and women differences and how perhaps yeah. you, you would coach them? Yeah. I'm, women have this sort of whole, yeah, whole picture, whole brain perspective where they need to know where each little piece of the puzzle fits in that bigger overall picture. Whereas men tend to be just like, okay, yeah, fine, and get on with it. Whereas women athletes tend to ask, or female athletes tend to ask a, a few more questions, which is great because it really challenges you as a practitioner and you really have to give, you know, an explanation and understanding of why you're doing something. And perhaps at times, there was, there was times where I probably wasn't so good at that. And that's good reflection points that for me, working in a female environment, you, you need to you need to give clarity and, and some sort of story of where this fits in and how that's going to impact each individual's performance. I think certainly like an initial... Uh, instinctive reaction if they come if you come across conflict for example is that a men have that that fight or flight so they react in alarm and aggression and action whereas if there's conflict within a within a, a woman's environment they tend to rely more on sort of those relationships and more of a feeling but a lot of studies they've done in women they put relationships before competing and they put that before competing at the expense of disrupting a relationship we're in a men's environment is solely on competition and competition only. Whereas a lot of factors that you need to take into consideration for a female environment is that a lot of the important stuff, and to, to an extent, I'm, I massively agree with this. And I, I don't necessarily think it's a difference between men's and women's environment because certainly the men's sevens environment, there was a massive emphasis on, on those relationships and that building of relationships as well. And I think that's why uh, the environment was such a special place. Because... You had such experience working with female rugby players at Richmond for many years. Do you think all the experience there really helped and made the transition going from the men's to the women's teams much easier? And I, I'm guessing, I think a lot of the, the female players knew who you were already, didn't they? Or had worked with other female athletes that know them. So you came with a really good reputation and a lot of experience. Do you think that really helped? Or 
did it even make things a bit more challenging? <laughs> I think with some of them it helped. I think with some it made, it was a bit of a hindrance maybe because people people have these natural biases and they develop their own perception of someone without actually having to know or having worked with them. Mm. I think naturally wherever you go, like same as me, you hear names you like before going to work with these specific individuals, you hear stories about them, you find out a little more information about them. And and I think, yeah, you do build up a picture and hopefully over time you can either enhance that reputation or you can diminish some of the negative thoughts that perhaps they, they had towards you as a practitioner. But yeah, no, it, it, it definitely did help. And having a lot of experience within women's rugby did did aid that as well. And the big, one of the biggest learning lessons as well was was that Barbar's experience where we had a lot of players from sort of New Zealand and the Black Ferns who are arguably the most successful team in world Mm. rugby between them and England. And to hear some of their sort of experiences and stories and how they perceive English rugby players and how they perceive why they think that they're better than England was really interesting. Are you allowed to say what they were saying? I think they they just, I think some of the Black Ferns girls that I, I spoke to believed that they were more instinctive. They were better rugby players. They were more instinctive. They said that England were very well drilled, very well structured. Mm. But when the game broke up and it, it became using instinct, uh, that England weren't so good at that and that they were the better team. And just from you know where they've grown up and their basic skill set, then, then that's where they excelled. I think that's changing though. Like now there's a whole ton more young girls out there playing rugby. I think there's more opportunity. I think certainly from some of the performance aspects, now the girls from such a young age at school have S&C provision. So actually their, their training age becomes a lot greater when they start to get into these sort of senior teams. But I, I think certainly some of the coaching as well throughout the levels is improving. So I think slowly over time, you'll start to see a big influx and, and a bigger pool of talented rugby players that you can pick from. I still have views over women's 15s and 7s as well. So. In, in what way? So, like, for me, it, it's hard because you've got New Zealand, England, who are the two dominant forces in women's 15s. You've got mm. France, who are obviously a very competitive side. And then after that, there's still a bit of a gap between the competitive nature of other nations and those three nations. And I think that's slowly closing. Every women's team is improving year on year. Ireland are getting a lot more competitive now. Wales, hopefully with new head coach Warren Abrahams at the helm, will start to develop and improve. I saw that on Instagram. That was recent, wasn't it? Yeah, oh yeah, amazing coach, like an incredible thinker, very cerebral type type coach. So hopefully he'll do wonders for them. Mm. Um, but yeah, there still is that gap. Whereas a lot of sevens teams, a lot of some of the best athletes within each nation have gone to play sevens. So some of the the best players within New Zealand, Australia, they all play for their sevens nations. Some of the competition between teams within the sevens circuit is far greater. So any team can beat anyone on their day. Mm. Uh, And I think that's probably some of the nature of sevens as a game anyway. But certainly seeing some of the sevens players now get reintroduced to some of the respective nations within some of the 15s competition, you've suddenly seen a bit of a difference in terms of the tempo the game is played at, some of the the loose style of play, certainly watching England-France last weekend, France, some of France's offloads and then the way that they were throwing it about with some of the introduction of some of their sevens players, I think has, has definitely been a benefit to, to the 15s games. And maybe I'm biased and I enjoy watching some of the sevens girls put on yeah. that England 15 shirt, but I definitely, definitely think it's been for a positive. 
Yeah. I'm certainly more competition will drive higher quality. And if the higher quality is in the seven circuit, just because of the way it's all structured or the more experiences, experienced players are heading to the sevens, then it's going to increase competition, which is going to increase quality on the pitch. Within, within the seven, they'd like, you watch any of the the women's sevens games and they're just all incredible athletes. Like mm. They all have to be able to move. They all have to be quick. They all have to be fit and be able to run all day. Even some of the collisions now, not just on the, the female circuit, but the men's circuit as well. You've got 110 kilo men being able to run at like 10, 11 meters per second, which is scary. What would you think is needed to, you said more opportunities are happening in the UK, better coaching is happening at more grassroots level that's going to create a bigger pool of players. So, automatically that's going to lead to better players filtering through. What kind of key things do you think need to be addressed during those development years would you think would improve that instinct which the New Zealanders clearly think they have the upper hand with? I don't know. I guess that's more of a question for a coach. But mm. you know, I think some, especially the way that sort of strength and conditioning as a profession is moving as well. There's a lot more, a lot more scope for needing to have an understanding of some of your skill acquisition based theories and some of the science around that. And I think there's certainly ways of increasing skill development and that's typical having a link on sort of the technical, tactical, some of the psychological aspects of performance and being able to have a bit of an input with that. That stuff around sort of varied gameplay, around movement variability. Like you, you see a lot of physical education in schools at the moment, and there's no real purpose to it. There's no real drive. Like you, there's no real understanding of how to constrain a particular environment to get like a desired outcome. So I think if it can start at sort of school level with some of the teachers having a better understanding of how to structure certain like Ian Taplin, who's now the sort of, he runs some of the physical literacy stuff at RGS High Wycombe. And I know retail sort of plotted at a few other schools now, but some of the influence that he's had there is, has been incredible in, in terms of educating the young players around efficient movement, around building certain physical capacities to be a, able to allow them to express themselves more within a PE-based environment, around teaching them just fundamentals around managing their own body, managing another body, building the basic skills of falling, rolling, jumping, sprinting, basic running, sprinting mechanics, all that stuff that gets introduced that when they get put on the field of play, they have a massive toolbox of movement variability that can they can then select from. I listened to an amazing talk by James Moore. So he he was the... What what I actually forgot the name of what you call it. The who's the person who's basically in charge of performance at the Olympics? So it was in uh, 2016. Like the I can't director. Or, it's a mission dear. Well, I don't know this mission dear something or other. But anyway, he, he's an amazing practitioner. Like worked yeah. with some of the, the the best athletes in the world. Anyway, did an amazing talk on his his new company that he set up a performance company. I think it's health development and something or other. Anyway, he was talking about how. Players who get less injured are normally the ones that can express like huge amounts of movement variability. And I think certainly that, that can be transformed into not only the women's game, but to the men's game from a younger age. I think you highlight such a key aspect of what's happening with this cultural change. We're seeing on the Masters at St. Mary's, more and more PE teachers are coming to do the SNC Masters. So they clearly want to 
know some certain skills so they can apply in their PE sessions. And then on top of that, you've got other schools which employ people like Tappers with a retail. You've got Andy Jones at Lions where SNC coaches are going in to teach those skill sets that can then transfer to all the schools. And this is done in such a fun and entertaining way. So it's really engaging and students are really taking part in with it. So all of a sudden, I reckon in what, three or four years, these students would have gone through four or five years of this training. And then when they start to specialize in a particular sport that they love, like ultimately, they're going to be in a much better position to reach that elite level, not only because they have physical qualities to do so, but like you said, if they have a better movement literacy toolbox, it probably means they're going to be less, less likely to get injured. So that means they would have practiced their sport for longer. So all of a sudden, you've got better athletes reaching the top end. Years ago, you have to diminish that standardized thought process of, okay, boys play football at school, girls mm. play netball. Like that's For me, that's complete bollocks. Mm. Like, there, there should be no sexual boundaries on the, what sports you compete in, especially sort of at a really young age mm. in terms of specialization. Give, give the opportunity to play everything, to learn the skills, different skill sets from every different sport that you can then pick and choose when you do eventually maybe go and start to specialize in something. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think there's, a, there's a really, I think there's a guy on Twitter called Jeremy Frisch who yeah. does loads of really cool youth development stuff. And he, he'd be, he'd be a good person to go and have a little look at on Twitter, post some really cool stuff out and videos and stuff. So you can see some of his ideas put into practice. Yeah, definitely. Any listeners that hasn't, haven't heard of Jeremy Frisch, check his, check his stuff out. He puts loads of videos online, doesn't he? Yeah, I think that's his name. I'm, I'm really bad with names and stuff. So. F-R-I-S-C-H? Something like that. I think so. This is a question for uh, those that kind of want to reach the heights that you've got to. So you've gone from working in schools, you've gone from working with uh, a number of different rugby clubs, and then you've reached the, the point where you're at the coaching at the elite level, working with international athletes. What would be your recommendation to anyone that wants to reach the level of working with international athletes and maybe even particular make lots of friends (laughs) i think i think certainly one thing i've realized at the moment and i know keir vernon flat bangs on about this but he's like i've never heard of anyone to get a job who doesn't know someone at that institution which i think is probably quite true and quite prevalent especially in this time where certainly elite sport at the moment budgets are constantly strained there's less opportunity you know people are going to hire people they like people are going to hire people they know or have had a positive recommendation from obviously you have to know your stuff and be a good practitioner but ultimately if someone doesn't know you or you're not a good person then you know the likelihood of you getting that role very slim and i think that's one thing i probably didn't do do well on in my early years was was actually building those relationships reaching out to people making an effort to go and visit places to go and speak to people and i know akir's talked a lot about this in uh, publicly on on social media but there, there are ways of, of doing that not just to message someone and go give me a job or, or let's go mm. it's, you know, it's a bit more tactical than that but i think certainly job opportunities in elite sport are going to be very very hard to attain at the moment so i think it's what relationships can you start to develop what skills do you not have where you, where you can start to build? I mean, this is a this is an amazing time for the amount of webinars I've tried to watch to upskill myself over this period. I was, I was watching one before uh, before I came on the call with you, mm. and to actually use this time effectively. I also think as well, if there's not those opportunities in, in elite sport, 
look at other avenues of work, whether it's working in sort of school education institutions. Is it working more in the health industry and having an impact through that? Is it developing your own business? So even if you do are lucky enough to get those opportunities in elite sport, you have a sort of a secondary income. So you're not completely reliant if you do get made redundant or another pandemic strikes and, <laughs> and you lose your job, that you do have some sort of income on the side helping you with that. So I think all those factors are in- important, especially the world we live in at the moment. No one knows what's going to happen. So Yeah. Almost seems that most coaches now, even if they are working with elite athletes at international level, they're also still working with the general population. Yeah, I think I know it's seen as side hustle, but I think a lot of them, one, yeah, they do the like the money from the side hustle, but they do it to still enhance their coaching skills. Yeah, I think it's really important to have a huge variety of people you coach. But again, the unfortunate reality is that the the money's tight and money from us as an industry and profession, they're never going to earn the money that you were going into the city and becoming like an oil broker or something like that. So Mm. It's like, how do you then supplement that with your skill set? And that's why I think you see a lot more people leaving professional sport and starting up their own business mm-hmm. um, to try and create something for, for, the, for the future because elite sport lasts a short time. Yeah, if you've got new coaching staff, they bring their, yeah, exactly. bring their staff with them and you could have not done anything wrong, but all of a sudden you're out the door. Well, you could be the best practitioner in the world, but if a new coach comes in, in any institution, I'm sure Matt Springham at St Mary's will, will, will tell you a bit more about sort of the football world and his experience with that. But that's even more brutal, you know. If they've, they've got a coaching team that they like, then they're coming with them. <clears throat> there, there you go. There's a word of wisdom. Make friends with a really good coach. No, that's good. That's good. I wanted to ask a few questions around teaching because you've got quite a vast experience of teaching at different levels, obviously at FE and at HE, mm-hmm. so further education and higher education. What do you notice are the main differences between, say, teaching and coaching? You're going to ask me this. Are they just very similar or do you prefer one over the other? And have yeah, reasons for that? I think, I think some of the similarities, teaching now, not so much because some of the group sizes are humongous. So like I, I remember in my last year that I was at St. Mary's with, with the rehab students, we had a cohort that year of 100. My, my ability to remember 100 names in the year is very poor. And But I think that certainly that relationship development between athletes, between students is really important, especially when you get to work a bit closer with certain students, for example, on dissertation projects or research projects or, or something like this, or it might be some of your tutors with some of the more pastoral care-based stuff. So I think certainly the relationship element is a big factor. And again, I know I use relationship in a broad term. I hate people who see someone and they go, yeah, how's your weekend? But don't actually care about any of the smaller details. Just if you can remember something, even if it's a small detail, go, oh, you've seen your mum at the weekend, right? Yeah, how was that? Was it like just something that's going to make it a little bit more specific? And that person suddenly thinks, Jesus, like, how did they remember that? They care. So I think those little things are really important. I think... The, the way that you are with a student and an athlete, my, my thought is that if you can make yourself redundant in some way, then you've done your job. So for an athlete, if you can educate them enough to be able to know what they're doing when they go into a gym or on a pitch, they're still going to ask you questions about certain things, but they have a really good understanding of how to look after their own body, how to manage themselves. And the same as students, when students suddenly grasp some concepts that they can start to go and learn for themselves. And, and some even end up having a higher understanding of the subject than, than, than you do. Then that's a really good place for you to be in as a lecturer or a 
practitioner. But I, I do think you are an educator within an athletic population as you are with students as well. I think that's a big role. Again, when within the role I, I used to do lecture on coaching and talk about I used to do it to rehab students talk about as a rehab practitioner but same as an SNC as an SNC you're a coach educator you are a you're a psychologist in some respect because you spend a lot of time with the players you spend a lot of time with some students and they start to open up tell you some personal details that perhaps is a little bit out of your remit it's just like how do you then maybe speak to the relevant staff to help them through this process and some of the difficult times which and then obviously that relationship with a coach and enabling to develop the players, but also relationship with your colleagues. So how do you work together to bring on a student cohort, student population, or individual student? So I think those are some of the similarities. Obviously, the difference is that there's a lot more students than there are players. So you, you can't develop that closeness. You can't get to know them as well. Obviously, I guess, certainly in St. Mary's, the hardest thing for me in that within that institution was that you're trying to develop students for to have a specific skill set to go and become employable right Mm. but obviously within any education establishments you're limited by resources you're limited by the powers that be that above you of what's in the actual best interest for the students and how we're going to develop a really employable individual and i think certainly within some occasions there's certain skill sets which they need to know within an educational institution that you just can't deliver because either you don't have the equipment and resources available, you don't have the expertise within your staffing population to be able to deliver that. And that was always a a real struggle, I think, because ultimately the world of work, especially if it's going to be an elite sport, is so competitive that how do you educate these young students and individuals to to go out and and become employed? No, no, I can definitely have the sentiment of, I sympathise with, we definitely had the same type of struggles, didn't we, when we were teaching together. We had this idea of we want to try and impart all of our knowledge onto our students to the point where, like you said, make yourself redundant. It feels like if the student doesn't know as much or more than I do, then I have failed my role as as an educator. That's always been my aim, but you're always limited by certain other factors. And I guess when it comes to a, a coaching role, because it, it allows you to be a bit more one-on-one and develop a bit more of a close relationship. You can have more resources or more time to be able to get around the things that may be affecting that. So you then ultimately develop a better coach-athlete relationship just because of the, the environment. The only real difference here is like how you give information is a little bit different. So you've got like lecture theatre or practical versus one-on-one coaching uh, and the actual content itself. But apart from that, I think I think as well, and and there were some people at St Mary's which were amazing at this, and some not. And and again, I hear stories of some people who are amazing in this within a in an elite environment. But I think it's really important to not swim in your own natural bias and have an understanding of where your limitations may may be. You should always go and seek the expertise of potential areas that you have no idea about in order to deliver either what's best for the athlete or what's best for the student. So rather than just making something random up or, or not having an idea on that or wanting a sole control of that element of a program or module or lecture or whatever that may be, you need to 
have some sort of humility and being able to understand where your weaknesses are and going, if you don't know the answers, go and find someone who does know the answers. And that's not only going to help your development as a practitioner or lecturer, that's mm. going to help certainly help the students or, or, or athlete as well. And I think certainly you look at a university environment, how much different expertise are in different departments and how poorly they're utilized together. So I think certainly like that collaboration between sort of different departments, not only in a university institution, but also making sure you've got that really strong relationship between a coach, a, a medical staff, a doctor, a skills coach. Like it, one thing that within the rehab setting is I've never understood why you don't engage the coach in the rehab process because you're trying to put them back on a pit, deliver a certain task, right? Mm. And obviously that last bit of the rehab puzzle is going to be based around the skills that they have to deliver with on a pitch. Now the coaches have a brilliant eye for that kind of stuff. That's why they're rugby coaches. Mm. So how can we involve the coaches in that rehab process to allow them players to grow and develop so that when we put them back on the pitch, they're not hesitating and, and they are ready for that return to performance rather than just return to sport or run around. So the interdisciplinary your interpersonal skills are so essential for improving that interdisciplinary team. Sure. Yeah, definitely. Do you think it's changed quite a bit? So it used to be like sports rehab and S&C was so separate. Now they're sort of working together a little bit and the people see it as a bit more of a continuum where you've got an injured athlete, you'd probably be a bit more with the sports rehabbers and then you've got someone that's you know, 100% healthy and is... You know, doing this SNC work each week, probably a bit more with the SNC coach. And it's kind of a continuum. And certain coaches probably specialize in a certain area, but they know the entire continuum. But the best way of knowing that ent- entire continuum is actually having a team of people that can take people from one end to the other. And I think that's getting better with SNC coaching rehabbers. But is that happening? Overall, like the psychologist coming in, the nutritionist coming in, the sports coach coming in, is that done better in sports environments rather than in rather than in universities? I guess. Well, I mean, um, I can only speak for some of the environments that I've visited or been in or worked in, but there, there's, I think, f- for me, like I love being involved from day one. Mm. I have a firm picture, so yeah, it might predominantly be be led by either a doctor or physio or surgeon or something to start with. But I think it's really good for an SNC to still have some sort of knowledge and be involved from that early process because like get like eventually it's going to be on a scale, isn't it? You're mm. going to slowly have transition points where you're going to have more of an influence going through that sort of rehab process. But I think to formulate a plan and to go through that journey needs to happen together. I've listened to so many podcasts of practitioners where they talk amazing game and they say, yeah, this is what we do. Don't want to be in silos, a multidisciplinary team, do this. But then I've spoke to athletes in those environments and it hasn't happened. Really? The physios have led something. They've not spoke to the SNC. The SNC has then given them something which has made them worse. And like wow. these, are at, these are at professional clubs. Yes, people, it's easy for people to come on a podcast and speak a good game and give their philosophy of what they feel they should do. But actually in practice, that is not is what that that is what is not being done. That's and, really interesting. Yeah, and, and speaking to other coaches who've been in those environments for years as well. Like you look at elite sport being the pinnacle. You know, a lot of the times, especially in these really high paid sports, you're led by what the coach has to say. Hmm. So, coach doesn't believe in something it's really hard 
for you maybe to put your whole stamp on certain philosophies of, of way that you want to work or, or, or that you want to deliver. But yeah, yeah. Of some of this, you know, <laughs> practice is still going on and that uh, maybe it's an ego thing sometimes that the more collaboration you can have in any department, I think the better. Yeah, certainly. I'm sure I heard a story a while back. I think it was at Tottenham where under one of their managers who was really quite interested in developing sort of the sports science things or side of the physical development of the players. So they brought in a load of kit and a lot of the coaches from like S&C, Rehab, all sorts were using different bits. Uh, and then he was fired. And then Andre Vias Boas came in and he was like, don't believe any of that. So they had like millions of pounds worth of kit just put into a cupboard because the head person just decided, no, I don't believe in that. We're not going to do it. So it kind of highlights to what you were alluding to. Ultimately, the head coach is the one that has the final say and how the interdisciplinary team works underneath it has to be within that framework. Yeah, and that's felt like we were so lucky to have Simon Amor in charge at the Sevens. Mm. Like he was... He, he, he was incredible in terms of like, he was a very detailed individual coach used to think a lot about what was best for the players. Worked really closely with you know, the psychologist Katie Warner, who again was inspirational in terms of the, the culture that was developed within the sevens. And I think those two worked really well together. But he trusted the medical department, he trusted the SNC to go about their business. Yes, he, he would obviously want to know an understanding of what they're doing and you know why they're doing certain things. But there, there was a lot of autonomy given to each sort of lead of each department to be able to go and deliver as you saw fit. And mm. I think that's really unique because ultimately there's a lot of places which aren't like that. And you're, again, like I said, dictated to by a lot of what the coach wants to do, which makes it limited. And, and but yeah, like that, and that's another reason as to why the Sevens was so special. I think any environment, the people are what makes it special. Mm. And certainly some of the staff that I worked with and built relationships with, but also like the players. Players were very you know, in tune, well-educated. They wanted what was best for each other. They spent a lot of time. Like I've sat so many times in these pre-season meetings where they go, what are our values? What are our aims? And and you do it within like a KPIs. day. KPIs. Stuff like that. But at the sevens, it was a really long, drawn-out process to actually figure out what was really meaningful for that group. And yeah, like Katie Warner drove that with Tom Hodgins doing some of the, the, the stuff for the women and their respective sort of captains. So you're Tom Mitchell and Abby Brown. Again, both incredibly smart, intelligent, bright individuals, incredible, incredible leaders. You know, Abby, a, a, a bit younger than Mitch, he'll hate me saying this, but Tom Mitchell was out in Bermuda and t- had some amazing conversation with him and some of his ideas around sort of his leadership style and stuff was, was really insightful. Mate, this has been brilliant. So I feel like I've just waffled a load of crap. Oh, that oh, I loved it. <laughs> but it's, I haven't, like we chat all the time, but you've never fully, I hear stories and I get a rough idea of how like your experiences within elite sport have been, but I haven't had a chance to like really take in like your full experiences and understand the skill set that you bring. So mate, this has been brilliant for me. So thank you very much. Like how can anyone get in contact with you? You have your Instagram. At Lona 7, but unfortunately I think a video was posted of me in Bermuda of me welcoming some of the Fijians to a WAP dance or something like that on, on it at some point. So, so yeah, maybe, not, maybe not all business on it, but uh, yeah, at Lona 7 on Instagram. As, is there any other way they can contact you if they have any questions or through Instagram? If me a message on Instagram or, or, or Twitter, I'll try and, I'm not the best at replying to, to messages, but I'll try my best. Ah, cool, mate. 
Right, brilliant. I'm so glad you were, you were number one for the Progress Theory Legends. Keep, keep an eye out. Also, this is a shameless plug. Keep an eye out for mine and Phil's paper, the Fingers Crossed, is soon to be published with the great Steph and Daniel Cohen, Dr. Daniel Cohen. Oh, that means we need a round two then. Like we've got, once that gets published, we've got two academic papers published together. So yeah. we might need a separate. Hopefully a third. We need to get on that, Phil. Oh, we do. We need meet next week. Yeah, 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 we mate, need. we're on it. Brilliant, mate. Thank you very much for that. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Progress Theory. All of the details and links featured are in the show notes on our website, theprogresstheory.com. If you want to hear and see more, follow us on YouTube or Instagram. Just search The Progress Theory. And we'll see you in the next episode.